Hello, and welcome to What on Earth, the podcast of the Environmental Investigation Agency, or EIA. Unless you've been hiding out in a cave or deliberately avoiding the media, chances are you can't have missed a veritable deluge of climate change stories in the news recently on the back of the UN COP26 summit in Glasgow last month. But away from the hothouse fever of the event and the warnings of impending doom and the protests, what did COP26 actually achieve? I'm Paul Newman, AIA's Senior Press and Communications Officer, and joining me today to take a look at the outcomes and to talk about what needs to happen next to make them a reality are climate campaigners Sophie Gagan and Kim O'Dowd. Welcome both, and thanks very much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you, Paul. Now, Sophie, perhaps I can start with you as you were EIA's person on the spot at the Glasgow conference. I appreciate it's hard to sum up such a busy event in a few sentences. You know I'm going to ask you anyway. Broadly, what was your take on the COP and what were its major successes? Um, It is a difficult question. Um, It was a busy and exhausting two weeks. It was also very exciting and thrilling to be there on the ground. There have obviously been very mixed reviews about COP26 and the success of what happened in Glasgow. There are definitely reasons to be optimistic and to be hopeful. There was a flurry of international pledges coming out in the first week around COP26, including pledges on deforestation, on methane, on energy efficiency, the US-China agreement, the Beyond Oil and Gas Coalition. But those are kind of happening alongside COP rather than the actual outcome of COP26 itself, which is kind of a lot more people have seen that as more of a failure in terms of watering down of language, the last stages from a phase out of coal to a phase down of coal, um, kind of the financing not quite being agreed on. A lot of the most vulnerable countries, once again, were asked to compromise for the sake of consensus and have walked away from another COP without the vital funding they need to address loss and damage and adaptation. Um, However, this is one COP it's obviously it was a big one, but there are more. There there'll be more. There's one every year, and all of these issues remain on the table. The loss and damage um, facility; those discussions will be ongoing. The fact that coal and fossil fuels were in the end agreement at all is a step forward, um, even though the language is not quite as strong as it was when it first went in, or what we'd need to see. All of these are moves in the right direction. The thing is, they're just the moves are too small for the kind of the state of the climate emergency that we're in we need a lot more a lot faster and while all of these are kind of everything's shifting in the right direction it's just not as quick as it needs to be luckily one of the big things that came out of this cop 26 is that the kind of nationally determined contributions or the things that each country pledges to do will now have to be kind of reviewed every year instead of every five years so if next year all these pledges are still not on track for 1.5, countries will have to come with better and bigger and more ambitious pledges to keep the world on track to 1.5 degrees warming instead of catastrophic warming that we're kind of heading for at the moment. Is there um, is there a stick behind this kind of scrutiny? Um, obviously, we're looking at it on an annual basis rather than every five years as to how countries are measuring up to what they've agreed to do. If they're not <laughs> um, doing anything that they're supposed to be doing. What, what, what's the um, what's, what's the coercion to actually get them on board? Um, I mean, it's difficult to get all countries to sign up to an international agreement, especially on climate, given that every country has a very different situation in terms of how they're 
um, being impacted by climate change, what their responsibility is. So all of these discussions and negotiations are kind of fraught with difficulty from the beginning. So a lot of times we come down to like the lowest common denominator with the final agreement. There are some countries whose pledges are much more ambitious than others. And there are other countries whose amb- the ambition needs to be ramped up massively. And there's a huge kind of divide between these different countries. They're not legally binding in the sense that these pledges are kind of maybe aspirational in a way. Um, not all of them have the kind of this, the planning in place as to how they'll reach these goals, especially for kind of net zero goals that are coming out now. The kind of the offset side of that and the actual emission reductions to get to that stage has not yet been worked out and is not in place. So in a sense, they are just pledges, so they can't be taken as kind of, these will definitely happen, this is how we will deliver net zero or deliver 1.5 degrees. It is more up in the air about that. I think what will hold these countries to task is kind of public perception and the awareness of global civil society and i'd say that's a huge success that comes out of cop 20 that comes out of cop 26 this year it raised a huge amount of awareness climate change was in the headlines in the news for the full two weeks and we saw some great to an extent that we've never seen before i suspect (laughs) yeah it was amazing it's on more niche uh, parts of the climate agreement is galvanized civil society. The marches are brilliant. The activism was inspiring. And so what actually happens at COP is very technical and full of jargon and really difficult to, not very accessible for most people. But what's going on in the sidelines and what goes on in the media and what goes on with the youth organizations, the indigenous groups, that is a huge part of kind of the COP conversation. I think there was a lot of success in that side of things. Yeah, it certainly seems to be, have been viewed with a lot more optimism than, say, the rather notorious Copenhagen COP a few years ago, where everybody couldn't agree a damn thing and everybody just walked away in, in despair at the end. This this seems to have, although not everybody got exactly what they wanted, it does seem to have, uh, as you say, raised a lot of expectations, has put the issue on the agenda, um, and, and it's got, the, the I suppose, the scale and the, the scope of the climate crisis a lot more fixed in people's minds than before. Um, One of the AI's newest areas of work in respect of climate change is methane, or more specifically, the methane emissions that arise from fossil fuel extraction and production, which I was staggered to find out are responsible for a whopping 25% of overall warming. Kim, could you tell us a bit about the issue and the response at COP26 to methane? Yeah, sure. First, maybe for a little bit of context on why we decided to start a campaign on methane and why it's so important that it becomes a topic of discussion in international conferences such as COP. So, as you said, methane is responsible for 25% of the global warming of the planet, and it is 60 times more potent than carbon dioxide. And what we can find in the IPCC report is that if we want to limit global warming to 1.5, global methane emission must be reduced by 40 to 45 percent by 2030. And from those, we must reduce the entropic methane emissions, which comes from three sectors, uh, the energy, the waste, and the agriculture sector. 
At EIA, we focus first on the energy sector because it has been identified as the main contributor to the rapid acceleration of atmospheric methane. So it was very urgent that we started talking uh, about methane and taking me measures on reducing those emissions. And I'd say that's what COP did. Um, it put methane on the map, if I could say, because I've been for a very long time out of the public eye. Um, what happened is that the US and the EU has launched the Global Methane Pledge uh, at the beginning, very beginning of the COP, and it has been signed by more than 100 countries, which is great. Um, it is the beginning of a very good conversation that we need to have. Um, the pledge says that they're going to have the goal of reducing methane emission for, to 30% by 2030, which is by itself a problem because, as I said before, we need to reduce our emission by 40 to 45% by 2030. So the ambition is not there yet, but it is a first step and it can be used as a tool to, in the years to come, actually reduce our methane emissions. How do you see the Global Methane Pledge itself becoming an efficient tool to tackle methane emissions? Obviously, it's, it's at the initial stages now. It needs to, if you like, um, develop into a more um, functional instrument. How, how do you see that going? So, as I said, this initiative is a pledge. Um, Sophie mentioned it before. It's pledges. It's non-binding. Uh, and most importantly, it's a global target. Um, the national like the nation that has signed along that pledge does not have targets themselves. And also we need sector by sector goals. Um, for example, as I said, the energy sector has been identified as the one who contributes the most to rapid acceleration of atmospheric methane. And it's also the sector where we can cut the emissions uh, the most efficiently and with less cost than the other sectors. So it'd be great to see in the upcoming discussion some real targets for those sectors and how we can do that. And at EIA, we've been starting to, to create such a tool where we would have measures on how to measure methane, methane emission and mitigate them, but also create some financial uh, tools that could be shared between different countries and also coordinate the different instruments that exist to this day to reduce uh, methane emission. Also, of course, we will need more uh, countries to sign along. Um, 100 has countries have signed, which is great, but major emission emitters, sorry, such as Russia or China didn't join the pledge, uh, at least for now, uh, which is which is a sign that we still have work to do on that. Okay, so the, the pledge was announced um, in the context of the upcoming European Union methane regulation. Um, how is the pledge actually going to influence the work of the EU? Um, is this going to be something like, say, the FGAS regulation, which controls um, hydrofluorocarbon you know, refrigerant gases, which are obviously also um, horrible, horribly impacting on the climate? Um, do, do you see it directing the work of the EU or working parallel to it? Well, I hope um, the, f the fact that the EU is, has launched this pledge with the US will encourage the EU to be very ambitious in the methane regulation. Um, it has the opportunity 
for the EU to position themselves as a leader in methane emission for that. And for that, we'll need a very strong regulation that takes into account all our methane emission. And to do so, we need to take into account all the oil and gas that we import in the EU. Because most of our methane emission in the EU comes from the fact that we import oil and gas. And for now, what have we've heard from discussion, the regulation doesn't seem to be taking into account those, those imports. So we hope that the fact that the EU signed that pledge and is encouraging other countries to sign it along will make, it, will make the regulation more ambitious. Also, what I would like to add, um, when it comes to, to the EU, it also has a position of leader because it has led the creation of the IMEO, which is the International Methane Emission Observatory. Um, it is a great tool that is being created um, that will make us able to see methane emission from the sky with satellites observation. Uh, those initiatives has to be supported by other countries and by financial means, obviously, but also by technical means, because satellites are the future when it comes to methane emissions. Uh, they'll um, make us they'll make the work of the industry to, to spot their emissions way more easily. It is an amazing tool to, to reduce our methane emissions. Uh, so, Sophie, it's widely agreed in scientific circles um, that if we're going to avoid a catastrophic future of climate chaos, complete with failing crops and mass migration and global upheaval and conflict and all the horrible Pandora's box of tricks that go along with that, then the world needs to limit the average temperature rise to 1.5 degrees C. Um, how likely is that goal still after COP26? Um, have we got a chance of getting there? Um, is it, have we left it too late? Um, let's, hopefully we haven't left it too late. Uh, has COP26 done enough to keep us below 1.5 by itself? No. Has it done enough to keep us below 2 degrees warming? Probably not. There's still a lot that is needed. There's a lot more work to do. But the good news is that the kind of temperature uh, projection trajectory we were on is starting to come down. Before COP26, the uh, UN emissions gap report put us on track for 2.7 degrees of warming, catastrophic warming. That's based on the national climate pledges and other mitigation measures that were available when that study was done. Um, and that's come down from, I think, 3.2 degrees last year. During COP26, the IEA rejigged and reran their models based on the methane pledge and the new uh, nationally determined contributions, the new national pledges coming into COP26. And they came up with a big, great number that if all of these were stuck to and actually followed through with, we're on track for a warming of 1.8 degrees. Everyone clapped, everyone cheered, everyone was psyched. This is great news. We're finally below that two degree threshold that is so key. And then later on in that week at COP, the kind of skepticism grew, which of course it should. The IEA model is based on absolute kind of following the rules. Every single NDC is successful and on time. The methane pledge does what it says it will do when it says it will do it and will probably do more. All of this is very blue sky thinking. So the carbon action tracker um, then came out and said, well, it's a very rosy picture. It's not very accurate, though, and this is based on 
very long-term um, kind of pledges with very little substance in the near term. So actually what we're going to be seeing is 2.4 degrees of warming. It's down from that 2.7, but it's still above 2, and it's still therefore potentially extremely catastrophic. Yeah, um, so it's not um, really what we're looking for, is it? <laughs> no, and like you said in your question, the kind of mass migration, failing crops, these are all parts of kind of ecosystems failing when you hit that 1.5 and go over it to two degrees you're at risk of then kind of setting off climate tipping points which will then tip off each other and it creates this domino effect of kind of disaster essentially um and i think that is something to be very aware of you can get caught up in the good news coming out on climate especially from companies and from certain countries where it looks great on the surface but you'd scratch a little deeper and there's very little substance there and there's no plans as to how those goals and those pledges are going to be met there's quite a lot of greenwashing going on and i think this was something that i picked up on a lot at cop 26 is recently there's been a flurry of net zero pledges net zero is the key word and it's the buzzword and everyone the companies the countries everyone's talking about net zero but a lot of companies in particular um i'm not so sure about the countries but they don't really have plans to reduce their emissions up until 2050 they're reducing them a little bit but for the most part they're going to rely on these huge carbon offsets in 2050 to bring them to net zero so they're still polluting as much as they are but they're just going to offset all of those with technology that isn't proven and isn't proven at scale so there's um, there's a lot to be skeptical about and doesn't <laughs> exist yet in the way that they want it to um so we need to keep to 1.5 to keep to 2 we need faster action, we need more ambitious pledges, but we need to see how they're actually going to be stuck to. We want to see the action plans and the institutional framework going on behind the scenes to actually bring those pledges to life and make sure it's not just a lot of hot air. Indeed, because it's so easy to sit there on the spot in the day and, and simply say what people want to hear you say as a country or a nation or a party involved, and then simply to walk away and not do it. <laughs> If I can turn, just to please, please do. jump on that. Uh, for example, on the methane side, we have uh, Canada who announced that they were going to reduce their methane emission from the energy sector by 75%. And this is the only country that is going to respect um, the recommendation from the International Energy Agency. And we would encourage more countries to do such announcements because we need those plans we need those targets and without those the pledges are just documents yeah uh, actually that uh, brings me on conveniently to another point um given, given that part of the climate negotiations every time there is a cop are about the, the responsibility of developed and far wealthier countries to help developing countries to fund the changes they need to make to fight global warming do you think enough is being done in that respect well it's hard to say yes. Uh, first, because the goals that had been announced during the Paris Agreement on financial help has not been reached yet. Um, there are still progress to make on that, even if, for example, the EU um, announced that they were going to increase their contribution. Um, but of course, I think this should be this should be stronger announcement on that. But more than just financial help, we also need 
technical coordination between different agencies uh, that will help the developed countries to reach their climate goals. Uh, for example, there's such an initiative uh, by the World Bank on uh, zero flaring initiative, uh, which is very important for methane emissions. Um, and we need to coordinate the different initiatives that exist, different bodies uh, from the UN and from other institutions to make sure that they are the service of the developed countries uh, to, f to, to reach their goals. Excellent. I think just to jump in and add to that, I think with the COP26 financing stuff, there's three major streams of it. So there's mitigation, adaptation, and loss and damage. Um, loss and damage was a big one for a lot of people at this COP26. It was a big one for the vulnerable countries, for indigenous communities, for the youth. And we're seeing that loss and damage is no longer this kind of abstract idea that we've been talking about at COPs for years. Loss and damage is happening now. We're in the age of loss and damage. Climate change is wreaking havoc across communities. And who foots that bill? Who pays for the fact that homes are being washed away, crops are being destroyed, livelihoods are disappearing? It's not the communities themselves that created the emissions that have now yeah. destroyed their homes. And so loss and damage, I think, is going to be a much bigger discussion going forward. And unfortunately, wasn't decided at this COP26, this Glasgow facility, we'll see what comes of it. And hopefully this discussion, the profile of this discussion is raised higher within the next COPs coming up. Okay, well, that, that brings us again conveniently to a final point. Uh, you know, the dust has barely settled on COP26, and yet we're already planning for COP27, which is what, um, 11 months away in Egypt next November. Um, what do you both think needs to happen between now and then for the next big climate summit to actually be the success that we ideally wanted this one to be and probably need that one to be? I think it's going to be interesting. So, so far, mostly like every five years, there's an important COP and that's the one that captures imagination and that's the one that's in the news. I think going forward, every single COP is now going to be important. Every single COP is going to be a big COP. So in Egypt, we need to see countries come back with their nationally determined contributions, more ambitious and plans on how to get there. We want to see some of these lofty and ambitious pledges actually with kind of action plans on how to get there. I think one of the really cool things that I saw at COP was the indigenous voices and the youth voices being really amplified in the sidelines of COP26. They're still not kind of present represented in the negotiation rooms, but these are such strong voices and they have great ideas and are actually at the front lines of climate change. And so I'd really like to see that platform amplified. Um, on a personal note and from an EIA climate campaign note, I'd like to see cooling on the agenda. I think at COP26, cooling was notable only in its absence. The cooling sector is responsible for a huge amount of cooling emissions. And as temperatures rise, more people are going to need to stay cool, to stay alive and to continue to work in a healthy and safe way. Um, and I think this needs to be addressed. And I was shocked at how little attention it got at COP26. Cooling really needs to be made a development priority, but also an environmental priority. Because if we meet the growing demand for cooling the way that we meet the demand currently, it's completely unsustainable with kind of 
the refrigerants we use, the HFCs, the HFOs, but also from the energy efficiency side and energy usage side. Um, so I think cooling definitely needs to make a bigger splash at the next COP26, hopefully. Well, as, as you and your colleagues in the climate campaign have consistently pointed out, it would be terrible if one of the side effects of the world getting warmer is that everybody starts using air conditioning that uses globally harmful, you know, climate harming gases. When there's there are so many natural refrigerants to transition to, you'd think it would be automatically on the agenda, not something you've got to push to get on there. Yeah, it was weird that it just wasn't really being spoken about. Although having said that, I went to quite a few side event sessions with mayors of different cities globally and a lot of them are coming up with these kind of like heat plans to combat the rising demand in cooling and to keep cities cooler because cities are warming at kind of double the rate of the rest of the world so we could see a four degree rise in temperature in cities cool. and so keeping inhabitants of cities cool is a huge priority for these kind of these mayors and these local communities and kind of city level planning and that was really cool to see and it's thinking more outside the box it's moving away from refrigerants and air conditioners entirely and looking at city design and building design and green spaces and fountains and rivers and all of this cool kind of a different way of thinking about how to keep cool without heating up the planet yeah, like a, a new model for urban planning that can then be used as a sort of a, a blueprint for elsewhere in the world once it's been rolled out successfully in the place that originated, I guess. Kim, what about you? What do you want to see happen before COP27? Well, I want to see national targets. I want to see plans on how to implement the different pledges. Um, when it comes to methane, again, they don't, they don't have to invent anything. We already have the technologies in place to reduce our methane emissions. It is just a question of, well, courage, political courage uh, on to implement those strong rules. Um, I hope to see a strong EU regulation um, because it would be hard for the EU to come back in, in a year trying to get more people working on methane when their own legislation is not really responding to the problem. Um, it is a question of legitimacy and we need to be those leaders to show that it is possible. Um, so yeah, I would, I, I would hope that in this year we'll see more plans on how to implement the pledges. And I hope that the leaders uh, we'll not just meet in a year, but we'll have maybe discussion in between, uh, especially again on methane. It is the first time that we talk about something that is as global as that. So we need to see what happens next. And that's what missed from the pledge is, okay, it's been launched, but now what? And I do hope that we have a conversation around that before COP27. Indeed. Well, certainly you and I will be um, via this podcast, I imagine, as our methane work progresses. <laughs> uh, Sophie, Kim, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's been a pleasure. And if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please watch this space for future episodes. And do check out our website at eia-international.org to find out more about our work. Thanks for joining us. And wherever you are, stay safe out there. <laughs>